Unscripted Direct is brought to you by Walkup Melodia Kelly and Schoenberger. Based in San Francisco, but with cases all over the country, Walkup is one of the most respected plaintiffs' personal injury and wrongful death law firms. You said that really nice. The attorneys at Walkup are so passionate about trying cases, we created an initiative to join with smaller shops to try cases that otherwise wouldn't have the resources to be tried. We call it Walkup Team Up. If you or a friend have a case and want to learn more, check it out at walkupteamup.com. You did that nicely too. We thank Walkup for supporting this podcast and our trial advocacy community. <laughs> Unscripted Direct. I'm Spencer Palkey from Berkeley Law. And I'm Sam Chase, UCLA. What? Justin's recruited you too? What the hell, man? No way, Spencer. Go Bears. Oh, go Bears. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> Sam, it is great to have you co-host this episode, and thank you for wearing headphones. How does it feel to be on this side of the recording? The headphones are very comfortable. And it just feels great to be here. This is very exciting to be able to co-host with one of my top three unscripted direct hosts. Three? Who's, well, who's, your, who, who's your first favorite out of that, those three? Uh, Judge Roberts. Ah, yes. You know what? Fair. Roll Tide. <laughs> Whamma, bama, yellow, hamma, jamma. Don't mock the judge. I'm not. I'm not. Um, not much. No, so anyway, I'm excited to co-host this with you, and it occurs to me that if you do a good job, I mean, it's possible that our board of directors might consider switching up the co-hosts a bit. I mean, I'm saying like you might you might have a shot at, at co-hosting this thing if you're interested, maybe. Ooh, very enticing, but uh, hard pass. I think you guys are really just getting this whole podcast thing figured out, um, but it would be fun to co-host with Justin. Yeah. So charming. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? Never, never mind. Never mind. Um, Justin, correct, right? Uh, the other co-host. Yes, he's away without leave. Uh, and do do you have any idea what he's doing? I don't, but I can imagine probably something about a vision quest into worlds unknown, feeding his basic desire to unravel the deepest mysteries of the universe in mock trial. Yeah, that that does sound a lot like like him. You and I, we're back here on Earth, and we've got a special episode for folks. Uh, we said we were done for the season, but turns out we're back in a flash. Call it a Christmas miracle. Every time a bell rings, UCLA wins a mock trial competition. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, this was the second annual Berkeley National Flash Trial Competition. Like the first year, we asked star mock trialers to embed themselves in the tournament and be guest hosts for us, picking up the stories from the ground so we could recount how the tournament went. And we have four fine guest hosts, Arnit Gertata, Cole Alfonso, Suleiman Ali, and Jad Sukar. Wow. You must be a real student of the game to just have their names and know who they are and just list them out like that? Well, Spencer, this is a little scripted, you know. <laughs> Don't tell Justin. <laughs> These four stars came to us this year from UCLA's undergraduate mock trial team, which is the reigning 2023 AMTA national champion. It was so much fun to work with these folks. Their energy and their eagerness was obvious to anybody who was watching. And not only did they help tell the story of the competition, their presence made the competition even better. All right. Should we pass them the mic? Man, you're good at this, Sam. Take it away, Arneet, Cole, Suleiman, and Jad. Hey. <laughs> 
Welcome to San Francisco and welcome to the home of the National Flash Trial Competition. Let's get right into it, y'all. So sitting right from across from me, straight out of the windy city of Chicago. I am from the suburbs, bud. You know what? Chicago kind of sounds cooler. Anyway, is my great friend, Arneet Gurtada. Next to me is Suleiman Ali, the best dressed in the room, I gotta say. I appreciate the honesty, Arneet. I'll dose him out of my own. To my left is Jad Sukar. We know him as the Lion from Lebanon. The charismatic young guy sitting right across from me, that's Cole Alfonso. Jad. He's a part of the Fighting Irish. He's... He's not from Notre Dame, but he likes to fight, and he's uh, Irish. We're happy to have him. In fact, we're happy to have all of you. And we're excited that you're listening at home as we jump in to the National Flash Trial Competition. Let's talk about who really matters here, the field. Now, it's 9 p.m. We just got back from a happy hour at the San Francisco staple of E&O Kitchen and Bar. Shout out to those steamed pork buns. Heavenly. Now, at this happy hour, all the people came and mingled with their future competitors, the tournament organizers, and us podcasters. Now, I'm sure all of you know that attorneys like to put on a a lawyer face, a lawyer voice. Honestly, it was fantastic getting to meet these people, mingle with them, see who they really are before we actually see them in competition. Now, let's talk about them. A A little disclaimer. We did have to figure out a way to order these teams, and we don't have favorites yet, so we're going to go by the gavel rankings. Suleiman, who do we got up first? Up first, we have UCLA, and this team is no doubt a powerhouse. Last year, they were the Stack and NTC champions, and they actually took the top spot at this very tournament. They also took home 12 first-place trophies out of 23 tournaments, meaning that this program, it doesn't just place. They win the majority of the time that they sign up for a tournament. Representing Los Angeles is Rachel Oda, who knows an awful lot about endangered chickens, and Peter Jones, who managed to meet Magic Johnson within a week of being in L.A. He'll be coached by Justin Bernstein. And after UCLA is another institutional powerhouse, at number nine on the gavel rankings, we have Drexel. Now, this year they've sent Clark Doig and Marique Newbarns to San Francisco, and they're going to be coached by Phil Pasquarello. Shout out to WatchMock if you've seen it. Now, last year, Drexel competed in 15 events. They placed first at two of them, and they were finalists in five. And one of those events that they were finalists in was actually this very competition. So we know they're going to be hungry this year to set the record straight and take the throne. And coming in at number 10 on the gavel rankings is Campbell. They're bringing with them Brandon Manella and William Sparks, and they'll be coached by Mary Ann Matney. Now, last year, they were at a 47% place rate across all of their tournaments. They were just shy of that coveted 50%. I, I didn't know that 50% was coveted, Selena. It's coveted now. We've heard that Campbell has a unique Southern style that's both casual and sharp. We'll be looking to see if, they, if Campbell can finally use their sparks to light up this show. Rolling in at number 11 on the gavel rankings is Loyola University, and they're bringing out the big guns for this competition with Natalie English and former football player Reed Gershenson, coached by Amin Hosseini. He's actually a former competitor at this competition from last year, so we'll see how that plays out for him. Next up is Baylor. They're ranked 13th in the nation on the gavel rankings. Now, last year, this team had a place rate of 53%. Let's see if they can start a new chapter this year. And here to turn a new page is Jilly Canales and Gage Jones. Now, we talked to these two over at the cocktail hour. They are smooth talkers who come from a law school that places an emphasis on trial advocacy. In fact, 
all of their 3Ls have to take a required trial advocacy course. So let's see if they can showcase that same dynamic performance that Baylor is known for. Now, Jared, I was actually a childhood Broncos fan, so it's only destiny to be introducing the University of Denver. Currently ranked 23rd on Gavel, with 12 showings at tournaments across the country, they've actually placed in six of them, with two wins coming from NTC regionals. Now, competing is Sophie Falali and Graham Hitchcock, coached by Kevin Keyes. Something about the absolutely electric chemistry between Sophia and Graham is going to give them the edge through statements and this entire competition. All right, next up is USC. Now, as a UCLA student, I'm happy to report that we're talking about the University of South Carolina. Oh, thank goodness. They come in at 25th on the gavel rankings. Last year, they placed in 6 out of 12 tournaments, and they just barely missed out on the NCT finals. Now, the two competitors that South Carolina is sending to the flash trial this year, that's going to be Tanner Wise and Zachary Freeman. Now, these guys are an absolute riot, and it's going to be their second year at this tournament, probably one of the most experienced duos at the flash trial. Now, these guys are confident, they're charismatic, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that translates into their courtroom performance. Now, Mary did have a little lamb, but the University of Maryland is not sending lambs. They're sending lions to this competition named Thomas Kiley and Rebecca Wells with the coaching power of Benjamin Garmo. So I'm sure a lot of you are asking yourselves the question, what in the world is the national flash trial competition? Well, I know we certainly were. Let's get into it. A flash trial, it goes by fast. Each day is going to have a different format, but one thing that's true for all of them is the low prep time. Now, today's format, it's a 2v2. You're given the case packet, and you head to the war room straight away. You'll have two witnesses provided by Berkeley who will be right there with you. And once you get inside the war room, you, your teammate, and your coach have an hour to prepare two directs, two crosses, an opening, and a closing. As soon as that clock finishes ticking, you head to the courtroom, and you're going to have 45 minutes of speaking time for everything. All right, it's day one at the National Flash Trial Competition, and I remember we all sat at this table. We agreed that we'd be in our suits, sitting here, ready to record at 8 a.m. It's 9.08, and the one, you're still tying your tie. Arnie, your hair is still wet, and Jad, you're still in your Batman pajamas? All right, Cole, cut me some slack. All right, enough about Jad's pajamas. They're about to drop the first case of the tournament. Let's go check it out. Okay, we just got back from our first case drop, and let me tell you, it is a mad rush out there, but I've got the packet, and it's time to fill y'all in. So it looks like we've got a IP case. Picture this. You're with your friend at a restaurant, and they pull out a a cocktail napkin. Now, instead of using a napkin for its intended purpose, they start scribbling on it. It looks like some stop-and-go signs, maybe a Hot Wheels car. Turns out this is a really important invention. But whose idea was it? Maybe something in the conversation inspired your friend to make this drawing. I mean, who gets the credit? More importantly, who gets the profits? That's what our first case is about. Let's see how the competitors handle this one. All right, on the plaintiff of this case, we got the University of South Carolina, and on the defense, we have Loyola of Los Angeles. What's the next pairing? Next room over, we've got Baylor versus Campbell. And also Denver versus Maryland. Final matchup is Drexel versus UCLA. Now, we're going to be watching all the rounds, but the round that we're going to be focusing on is Drexel Klein Law versus UCLA because that was actually last year's 
national champion and runner-up of the NFCT. Whoa. Oh, we just got back from the war rooms. What did you all see? Well, in the Loyola room, every single thing is planned out. 15 minutes in, the case is read. 22 minutes in, they start working on directs. 29 minutes in, they're on crosses. 33 minutes in, they tighten their case theory. In the last 10 minutes, they're tightening up their theme theory and things to focus on in statements. It ran like a machine. So what did you guys see in your war rooms? Well, I was watching Baylor and Campbell's war room, and this was interesting. Baylor, they decided who was going to do each statement before the round, whereas in Campbell's war room, they decided that about seven minutes into prep. Now, Jad, unlike in your war room where the roles were already prepped, over in Denver's war room, they already had a system for how they would be prepping the theory behind this case with five categories, and we actually got a chance to talk to Sophia about her mindset. Yeah, so we always do our top fives, like our top five facts. When we do not flash, we'll usually do like a top ten, but we break it down for this. So we have that, and then we have what exams those come out on, what exhibits they come out through, uh, pillars, which we don't necessarily use every time. It kind of depends. Um, our bad facts, we usually write down our mill as well, and then I'll take notes about like a theme or other kind of stuff, the elements, if we're on plaintiff or prosecution. So pillars are what we're structuring our case around. So our sort of formula usually involves three pillars. When we're on plaintiff or prosecution, that usually becomes the elements are our pillars. Um, so sometimes that section never gets filled out. But when we're on defense, we'll usually have um, like three things, three facts, or um, like three categories of something that helps us navigate the case. It's how we structure statements, and then it's usually how we structure exams as well. Now, a really interesting aspect of the war rooms is the coaches are in there with the competitors. Now, I had a real rude awakening in South Carolina's prep room when I saw them prepping their directs, and I'm thinking, when are they going to move on? And out of nowhere from the corner, I hear, Zach, I got your cross written for you. I mean, honestly, it's like we, we have a third competitor in the room here. Listen to what the handwriting of that signature looked like on the contract and on the check that the defendant signed at that restaurant. But I'm not asking about what your opinion is. I'm asking about what you saw. And what you saw was that you couldn't tell who wrote on that paper in the restaurant that day. Isn't that right? I didn't see either of them use the pen. Exactly. They got up here, they drew some, drew some lines on the whiteboard, but they didn't ask our expert a single question about the drawing similarities. You want to know why? Because there's nothing to ask. Now, of course, Avery Well had to get on the stand today and tell you, oh, I, I don't even recognize that contract. I only saw it when my lawyer gave it to me. I have no idea what that is. But in his sworn testimony, his statement that he gave before he walked into court today, he told you that he wrote the contract. He said that he was the one that put the pen to paper. We just watched all of the round one round. Let's talk main takeaways. I mean, that 60-minute prep period, thinking about structure, thinking about storytelling, it just has to take a back seat. Arnie, I couldn't agree more. No, I actually had a completely different experience than both of you. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the UCLA Drexel round, they had clear narratives in their statements. They had polished presentation. 
and that carried all the way over into their examinations. You know, they were running around the courtroom. They were quoting and reacting to each other all over the place. I mean, Suleiman, to me, the key moments in trial had to be the cross-examinations over in the Baylor-Campbell round. These attorneys, they had to be very careful not to chase the witness down a rabbit hole straight into Wonderland. I mean, remember, these attorneys, they have 45 minutes to get through all of their material. They've got to be concise. With all that in mind, I want to see how this played out on ballots. Now, Suleiman, you had the round to watch. Let's take a look at it. Yep, Drexel versus UCLA. This was the final round from last year. And just like last year, UCLA came out on top. They had a plus 5, plus 12 tie win against Drexel. So UCLA is up 2.5. Drexel's got a tie going into the next round. Cole, what about you? Well, over in the Denver-Maryland round, it was actually a pretty decisive Clean sweep by Maryland. They're up 3-0, and Denver's going to have to make up some ground. Jad. Well, I was watching the Baylor-Campbell round, and in that round, Baylor took one, Campbell took one, and then a plus-one ballot went to Campbell for a total of two to Campbell and one to Baylor. I mean, I I had some pretty narrow margins, too. Over at South Carolina and Loyola, Loyola just barely took two off of South Carolina. Now, before we get into round two, we want to make sure that this podcast is still entertaining for y'all. So we're, we're consulting a new resource. Uh, Suleiman, what does ChatGPT have for us right now? We just returned from a McDonald's run in San Francisco where the golden arches meet the golden gate. Well, you can't, you can't win them all. So let's move on to the round two case that was just released. Here's what it's all about. All right, now I got the case in front of me. This case is going to be all about Cal Dobbs, who was out hunting deer in the San Isabel wilderness when they accidentally shot a lone hiker. Uh, now, this is interesting. Because of how short the cases are, the prosecution will actually get three separate charges that they can choose from. Whether or not Cal Dobbs shot the hiker intentionally, whether or not it was gross negligence, or whether or not Cal Dobbs was under the influence at the time of the incident. Let's see some of these rounds. Did you hear how the detective never once collected that rifle? That detective never once tested that rifle? That detective never once collected ballistics. It is common sense that if a person fires a gun into the woods, doesn't see where the bullet goes, and then immediately finds a screaming woman with a bullet in her, yes, the defendant shot the victim. We just finished watching round two. Arnie, tell us, were there any standout moments during the round you were watching? Oh, absolutely. I mean, right at the start, Thomas Kiley of Maryland, he comes out with a motion to exclude all of the defense experts' testimony. A bold, bold move. Now, we know how these competitions work. That thing did not get granted, but it put Drexel in a bad spot with the judge because they were having to defend their expert before their case in chief even started. Well, Arnie, I actually had a similar moment in my round with Loyola, I noticed that they were prepping a voir dire in the prep room. So when the time came in trial, when the defense expert was testifying, Natalie English, she stands up and she conducts the voir dire. Does it work? Well, at first it did. Uh, The judge actually decides to withhold ruling 
So for a moment there, the entire room, we actually thought the defense expert's testimony would be completely thrown out. But luckily, opposing counsel, they're able to lay uh, some more foundation, and the judge decides to let the expert testimony in. All right, y'all, if I could start the results of round two pairings, I think mine has got to be the most fascinating. It had the previous champion, UCLA, taking on South Carolina, and South Carolina really differentiated this round, and they took two ballots to UCLA's one. This is a big moment in the competition. Wow, it sounds like we're getting a lot of splits here because I had the exact same thing. In Campbell versus Denver, we had a plus 10 to Campbell. The other two ballots were really close, a plus one to Campbell and a plus one to Denver. And I had a pretty definitive sweep with Baylor taking all three, plus nine, plus five, plus 10 against Loyola. Chad, he's a math major, so he's been crunching some numbers up for us to tell us where the teams are at in the standings right now in this tournament. All right, well, I've been at it for a couple of hours. I've been doing some complex integration, but really just a lot of advanced addition. We have UCLA at fourth place with three and a half ballots. In third place, we have Campbell at four wins. In second place, we have Baylor at four wins. And in first place, we have Maryland at five wins. They might be in a good position, but don't forget... No team has been knocked out yet. Everyone's got a fighting chance going into tomorrow. Welcome back to the podcast. It is day two, and we're really starting to feel the energy pick up in this competition. Let's dive right into our third case. Andy Harwick is home from college and wants a summer job. So he becomes a mascot for pauses, pizza, and pies for 40 bucks an hour. It's a total deal. Except on July 4th, Andy claims he overheats in the costume and falls down a flight of stairs suffering serious injury. He's now suing his former employee for negligence. It's an interesting case. And y'all, I know this is a podcast, right? You can't see what this mascot looks like. I don't have words, but I've been told it is the Grimace from McDonald's. That's the best I can do. It looks like a melted popsicle Barney horror show, but that's what we're dealing with. Okay, as if these competitors didn't have enough to worry about with prepping a case in a small amount of time, the format of this competition actually changes from day to day. So for day two, we're going from 2v2 rounds to 1v1 rounds. So prep time will shorten to 45 minutes. Attorneys will have to prep an opening, closing, direct, and cross within that 45 minutes, and their witness is going to be their co-counsel. Now, this will be a really interesting development. I want to see what teams do with this. All right, so we just got pairings for round three. Now, keep in mind, this is the first round of the tournament that is power matched. On top of the field, we have Baylor versus Maryland. And in the middle of the pack, we have Loyola versus UCLA. All right, so we just came back from the round three war rooms. Did any of you guys notice something different in the war rooms you went to between day one and day two? I mean, I got to say, Jad, I was surprised with the consistency that I saw from Baylor. I mean, regardless of the shortened prep period, they really, really honed in on theory for over half of the prep period. You know, they focus on who the bad guy is, what's the bad decision that they made, and really, really prioritize storytelling to the point where I thought it, it took away from their exams. That's very interesting because I was in the Maryland prep room and they did something completely different. 
not only were they not prioritizing statements, they were focusing really hard on the exams, verbalizing it throughout the entire prep period, which is something that I hadn't seen all tournament. So opposing counsel got up here and asked you three questions. I want to ask you three questions too. Who gave the opportunity? Who controlled the conditions? And who didn't care? And there was one person best position to tell everyone, hey, it's getting too hot in here. I need a break. Stop. I don't want the pay. I just, it's too much. Get me out of here. That best person was the plaintiff. Members of the jury, these tools were not used to protect Mr. Hardwick. They were used to protect the defendant's profits. Is there anything that you guys saw in this round that you hadn't seen before? In my round that I was watching, the Battle of the Carolinas, this was the first time I saw time become an issue. William Sparks gets up for his closing statement. He turns to the timekeeper. He goes, can I get a time check? Timekeeper stands up. They say, you have four minutes left for your closing. This is including rebuttal. I actually had a great conversation with Will. What was your reaction hearing that your opponent has four minutes and you have 12? Does that change how you give a closing argument? Absolutely not. Um, when I go into a round of mock trial, I do my mock trial. I let them do their mock trial. There are very few cases that I run that are reactionary. Mm. Um, my mock trial is much more I'm focused on my case. I do my case the way I'm going to do my case. And you do your best to stop me. Um, but I will say, after I found that he had five minutes... Um, I, I know that he, he ran out of time in the middle of the close. There was no point in time uh, where I was going to say, you know, call time, all that kind of stuff. Wow. I like for these kind of things to be really fair. When he wanted to give another rebuttal for an extra minute, absolutely. I want, if I'm going to get beat, I want to get beat on the merits. I don't want to get beat on the technicality. Me and Arnie, we were watching the Baylor versus Maryland round. And something that was very interesting to me some, was something that didn't happen during the round, but after the round in the judges' comments. They were very focused on the authenticity of the witnesses. That's not something I'd seen all weekend. And I think the format is what made the difference because there was only one witness on each side for the entire round. I couldn't agree more. The witnesses in the Loyola-UCLA matchup were pivotal. This is the first time I'd seen a AMTA-style witness in this entire tournament. I'm talking about a witness who was actively trying to mess with the crosser, trying to drop their score on the ballot. I mean, I got to say, in the Baylor-Maryland round, we were at the top of this bracket. And what made the difference for me was structure, which is something I hadn't paid attention to before. But when everyone is fantastic, when everyone has command of the facts, I'm thinking, who makes the most sense? And without structure, without flow, without that outline to ground your theory, I mean, you could be shooting yourself in the foot. We just got handed the round three results, and this was the round where competitors started to differentiate themselves from other competitors. Yeah, Drexel versus Denver. This was a clean sweep, but make no mistake, this was close. Drexel knocks out Denver with a plus two, plus one, plus one margin on their ballot. See, I had a similar situation in the UCLA versus Loyola round. UCLA swept and knocked out Loyola. Baylor versus Maryland was another close sweep, but Baylor did steal that top spot, taking three off Maryland. So just to summarize the round three ballot results, we have six teams in the bubble, which means those six teams have the ability to advance to the semifinals. We have Campbell at four wins, Drexel at four and a half wins, Maryland at five wins, 
South Carolina at six wins, and Baylor with a commanding seven wins. Now, keep in mind, the top and bottom team in the bubble are separated by just three ballots. So it all comes down to the fourth round. What are the pairings for that round? The first pairing that we've got is Maryland versus Campbell. Now, the thing about this matchup is that only one of these teams can advance. Maryland's at five wins, Campbell's at four. They're going to need to show up big time in order to make it to the semis. The next round that we have is South Carolina versus Drexel. Now, again, only one of them can advance. South Carolina needs one to two ballots, but Drexel can only advance with a sweep of SC. Third matchup we've got going is Baylor versus UCLA. Now, these are teams that are in a pretty comfortable spot in this tournament. As long as they don't get swept, as long as they can squeeze by with one or two ballots, they're in a strong chance to make it to the semis. Now, I got to tell y'all, the round four case drop was something to see. I mean, there were some costumes involved. So in the spirit of showmanship, I'm going to pass the mic off to Suleiman. Aye, look lively, me mateys. This here be a case of piracy. It was a shadowy eve last year when the brazen lass Anne Bonnie came upon a majestic vessel. All right, my fellow podcasters, they're looking at me like I'm crazy, so I'll just give it to you straight. Last year, Anne Bonnie, she has dreams of becoming a pirate, and so she acts on that dream. She boards a ship, she steals some loot, and she heads back on over to shore. But the thing is, is that Anne Bonnie, she's not on trial today. It's her friend who helped her out, provided her some shelter, gave her some food after she came back to shore. See, Anne Bonnie, she's confessed to piracy. And now her friend who helped her out, he's on trial for confederating with a pirate. What you're going to hear is that there were 400 people on that boat. And not a single one of those people saw Mr. Jones on that yacht, saw Mr. Jones with Miss Bonnie, saw him that night at all. Members of the jury, he housed her, he hid her, and he lied for her. The reason that we're here today it's because of someone else. Because someone, once Anne Bonnie stole that watch and jumped off that boat, someone knew she did that. Someone helped her after the fact. And someone lied. Arnita and I were watching the UCLA versus Baylor round, and I got to say, this round was a battle of interpretation. You had both sides repeating the exact same facts, but with very different tones and very different styles. UCLA was trying to take this silly pirate case and make it sound as bad as possible. And on the other side, you had Baylor sticking to a risky strategy that they talked about in their war room that they're just going to make these facts seem as ridiculous as possible. They're going to chuckle a little. They're going to laugh a little. And I'm very curious to see what the judges thought of it. I mean, here's my thing with the Baylor and UCLA case. When the stakes are this high, when you're hitting a team you've hit before, when you know that you're in a high-level round, you have to know when to quit. You have to know when you've won an exchange. 
and we saw an example of probably one of the strongest impeachments I've ever seen uh, when Peter Jones was crossing the defendant in this round. And just moments later, he went for another impeachment. He let his rhythm get the best of him, and the impeachment failed. So I was following the Maryland-Campbell match. Now, something interesting happened. I was sitting in the Campbell war room, and maybe seven minutes in, they find a typo. They decide to build an entire theory around that typo. And as they're leaving the room, they're feeling pretty confident. Now, about two minutes before the round is supposed to start, a message is sent out to all the competitors that tells them that the typo has been corrected. For the rest of that round, Campbell is sort of on the back foot. Maryland just, Maryland just looks a lot cleaner. Now, we're actually not going to get the results for round four until the award ceremony later tonight. So we're going to head out of the studio. We're going to book an Uber to go to a restaurant called West of People, and we'll keep you all updated. Sam, we should jump in here because we need to thank our amazing sponsors, each of whom made the National Flash Trial Competition possible. Our first and primary sponsor was WalkUp. Thank you, WalkUp, for being so supportive of trial advocacy generally. It's one of the many reasons I'm proud to be a shareholder at WalkUp. Next up is Jams. Beyond having an amazing name, Jams successfully resolves business and legal disputes by providing efficient, cost-effective, and impartial ways of overcoming barriers at any stage of conflict. Jams offers customized in-person, virtual, and hybrid dispute resolution services through a combination of first-class client service, the latest technology, top-notch facilities, and highly trained mediators and arbitrators. And I can attest to that firsthand. I work with Jams all the time. Special shout-out to Ed Cruz and Serena Lee at Jams who are on the ground and help us make everything run so smoothly. Our next sponsor is Venable LLP. As a law firm of more than 900 professionals, Venable delivers legal services globally in every area of regulatory compliance, government affairs, corporate and business transactions, intellectual property, and complex litigation. But no matter the practice, they are united by their passion for the work, all meant to empower their clients. At Venable, it's all about the client, their priorities, their goals, their long list of what-ifs that keep them up at night. Well, that's just a to-do list at Venable. Sorry to interrupt, Spencer, but next we have Munger, Tolls, and Olson. For more than 60 years, Munger, Tolls, and Olson attorneys have been working with clients on their most important and complex cases and deals. With offices in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., Munger Tolls maintains a national and international practice. Their principal areas of practice include litigation, corporate, professional liability, employment, financial restructuring, tax, and executive compensation. It's like they're speaking directly to my soul. These are all of the things that I need in my life. Well, you know who to call, right? It's right there. Munger Tolls and Olson. There you go. All right, our last sponsor is King & Spalding. King & Spalding helps leading companies advance complex business interests in more than 160 countries, working across a highly integrated platform of more than 1,300 lawyers in 23 offices globally. KNS delivers tailored commercial solutions through world-class offerings and an uncompromising approach to quality and service. Thank you again to all of our sponsors so much for making the 2023 National Flash Trial Competition possible. Back to our guest hosts. We're back from West of Picos, and we've got some results for you. The 
first seed coming in with nine ballots, a CS of 23.5, which means they were going against fairly good teams, is Baylor. Second in heading into the semifinals with a record of eight ballots and a CS of 21 was Team 101, University of South Carolina. And the third team in with eight ballots and a CS of 20.5 was Team 106, Maryland. And for our fourth and final seed in semifinals, with seven and a half ballots, a CS of 26.5, incredibly high in this tournament. Team 108, UCLA. It's day three at the Flash Trial Competition. Now, I got to say, last night we had some interesting conversations with some of the competitors off the record conversations but i will clue y'all in we talked about moose fish physics bubble loafer fitness scram pacer all right now you're just saying words cole and it's an even more interesting case i gotta tell you you see we've got a hiker logan day who chooses to go out into the wilderness on a 97-mile hike all by himself and in the middle of winter at that. See, there's obviously some potential bad weather here, and you know it's a 97-mile a hike, so he decides to take an emergency GPS tracker manufactured by Mountain Trek Incorporated along with him. Now the weather, unfortunately, it turns on him while he's out there, so he hits the SOS send help button on his tracker, but... No one comes to save him. Our hiker, he he doesn't make it. Now, the real question of this case is going to be, who is responsible? Is it the risk-taking hiker? Is it the company who made a faulty product? Or is it just Mother Nature? We're shifting our focus now to semifinals. The only change in the format of the semifinal structure is all about the witnesses. We're still in 2v2. We're still in 60-minute prep, 45-minute performance. The change comes down to witnesses. The witnesses are now former competitors. So you're now directing and crossing people that just yesterday you were enemies on going head-to-head against each other, and now they are on your side helping prove your case. It's a very interesting dynamic. So we've got some really interesting semifinal rounds. Arneet, you were taking a look at the Baylor-UCLA matchup. To me, honestly, there are two things that place Baylor in a fantastic position going into this semifinal round. I mean, first of all, Baylor's dominating the field. I mean, their first seed, they have nine ballots. They're practically untouchable, and for good reason. Second, this is a rematch. <laughs> Less than 12 hours ago, Baylor took two ballots off of UCLA on the other side. They know UCLA. They know how to beat UCLA. Now, I should say, semis are a clean slate, and UCLA has proven that they are knowledgeable, experienced, and that they're great performers under pressure. So I definitely would not count them out of contention in the semifinal. Now, I was taking a look at the South Carolina-Maryland matchup, or as we are calling it in the jam studio, the battle of the closers. Over in South Carolina's corner, they have Tanner Wise, who's only lost one closing out of nine ballots. And then on the other side, Maryland has Rebecca Wells. 
she's also just lost one closing out of those nine ballots. It's really going to come down to those closing arguments. Mr. Day was on that trail. It was snowing. It was cold. And he was scared. So when he pressed that emergency button, he was expecting help. They never came. Believe him when he takes the stand and tells you that even if they'd gotten that alert earlier, even if it had come in the moment that Logan Day pressed that SOS button, that blizzard would have kept them from getting out. No one except for Mountain Tracker knew Mr. Day was in trouble and he trusted them to get him help because they promised safety and they didn't follow through. All right, so we just came out of watching the semifinal rounds. Cole, you and I were watching the Maryland SC round. Now, what were your main takeaways? My main takeaway was that, again, we see the power of objections. Maryland, with um, Thomas and Rebecca, had two great substantial evidentiary objections. They got evidence stricken, and they looked good doing it. While USC just had a simple ask and answer that was immediately overruled. It just came down to objections for me. Jad, what's your takeaway? Well, to me, the biggest moment in trial was near the end in closings. Now, Tanner, he gets up and he gives a fantastic closing with an excellent PowerPoint demo that had three separate questions he wanted the jury to answer. But when Rebecca Wells goes up for her closing for Maryland, she asks opposing counsel to bring back the demo, and she spends about two minutes flipping every single question. It was a fantastic display of responsiveness. I mean, I got to agree with Cole here. In the Baylor-UCLA round, objections were huge. I mean, UCLA dominated on objections. But on the other end of it, we saw UCLA fail to adapt to the mistakes that they made in the previous round. I fully agree with you, Arnie. And one thing I want to add on top of that is how UCLA struggled to weave in their theme and theory throughout the trial. Their theme was, this was not negligence, this was nature. And their argument during statements was that a blizzard is what caused this hiker to lose their life. The problem was that they were only talking about this blizzard on half of the exams. And I thought that Baylor was doing a very good job of responding to their weather theory both during cross-examinations and in their statements. Well, let's take a look at how this impacted ballots. Okay, I mean, here's the moment. They have just announced who made the final round for the 2023 National Flash Trial Competition. Let's start with the Maryland SC round. Jad, what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at a round that is as close as it gets. One ballot goes to South Carolina at plus two. The next ballot, South Carolina again at plus two. And the last ballot with a plus one to Maryland. So USC is heading to the final round. Suleiman, what about UCLA and Baylor? This was a close round. A plus five ballot going to Baylor. A plus nine ballot going to UCLA. In the final ballot, determining who's going to be in that final round, 
was a plus eight to Baylor. UCLA, the returning national champions from last year, they've been knocked out. And it looks like our final round is Baylor versus South Carolina. Let's take a look at the case that they're going to be dealing with inside their war rooms. Now, Jad, it's interesting that you mention anesthesiologists because this case is about a surgery gone wrong. Last year, the plaintiff went into the operating table and came out in a body bag, died during surgery. Now, the question is, why? Did a company make defective surgical equipment? Or was it the hospital that failed to maintain that equipment? Maybe it was the surgeon himself. Maybe that surgeon wasn't monitoring the plaintiff's vitals during the surgery. Those questions are what the advocates are going to have to answer. All right, so throughout this weekend, we've been telling all of you that the format for each round changes on a day-to-day basis. And that trend doesn't stop at the final round because in the final round, we have arguably one of the biggest twists in the tournament. This time... The witnesses aren't students. The witnesses aren't competitors. The witnesses are real-life experts. Berkeley Law has brought in two experts in anesthesiology, and they're going to be working directly with the students in the war rooms. With a case this complicated, it's not going to be easy for these advocates to find those answers. But luckily, they have some backup. Now, we took a look inside the war rooms to give you guys any updates that come with having an actual PhD in your war room to help you prep. One thing that we noticed was instead of the typical silence when advocates are digesting the case right at the start of prep, there was a cross-examination. I mean, they were asking these experts any questions they could think of. What's the best way to approach this? What is an anesthesiologist's responsibility? What's your motto? Is there another way we can explain this? Is there a helpful analogy that you teach your students? Anything. And what's even more interesting is that these experts had never been expert witnesses themselves. So they were learning how to prep a direct and learning how to be prepped for cross while their advocates were learning how to deal with a real-life expert. When someone's life is on the line and you know there's a problem, you need to fix it. The defendant corporation A. Aorta didn't fix a problem they forgot. Now, whenever you learned that an A. Aorta was being sued, you actually contacted the plaintiff yourself, right? They did. We not only contacted the plaintiff, you offered to testify for free. Yes. You offered to testify for free against your competitor. Yes. Members of the jury, it's constructed that way so that an anesthesiologist doesn't forget. Doesn't forget that their one duty is to be vigilant, to keep patients alive. Ask yourself, whenever opposing counsel asked you today about those manufacturing guidelines, when they talked about what did the guidelines say, ask yourself if they ever showed you those guidelines. No. They didn't prove to you that there were any guidelines. Something else we didn't hear about was an apology. Any admission of responsibility and acceptance that, yeah, they did things wrong. 
Instead, the defendant decided to point the finger at everyone. At a fired employee, at a company that, that makes safe machines, at the doctors in the room. Everyone except themselves. We just finished the final round, and wow, that was exciting. So many moments. I don't think we have time to talk about all of them. Let's pick a few. Jad, what was your favorite moment during that trial? My favorite moment had to be the cross-examination of one of the experts conducted by Tanner Wise. Now, he actually told us what his strategy was going into that trial. His questions elicited a quick succession of yes-no answers from the expert that made him look in control. Arneet, what did you see? My favorite moment had to have been from an objection argument, actually. Now, obviously, as we talked about, this case deals with doctors in surgery. Now, that's a stressful situation. So, somebody tried to use the uh, excited utterance exception, but Zach Freeman from South Carolina was not having it. He said, Your Honor, doctors see blood, brain matter. They see people die on the table all the time. That can't be a stressful situation for them. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. You know, I think overall it was a great round. But for me, it was Gage's closing. And just for one simple reason, fluidity. It is so hard to move effectively, especially in a high-stakes final round. But Gage was just moving from his whiteboard diagram to his points during his close, even to the Zoom electric board he was was pointing to. It was just fluid and easy to watch. Speaking of fluidity, I absolutely loved Gage's direct examination. Now, when we watch these trials and these mock trials, we're used to the expert witness stepping down and boiling down a very complicated concept with a visual aid. But in this trial, the script was flipped. It was Gage, the directing attorney, who pulled out a marker, walked up to a whiteboard, and started drawing a diagram for everyone to understand what his own expert was saying. And what I love about Gage's decision here was that it was informed by a judge in the previous round. The judge straight up told him, you should be using the whiteboard more, and that's exactly what he did. Now, we could just tell you the results of the final round, but I got something better for you. So we've reached the end of our journey, and I'm sure a lot of you at home have picked up on why this format is so advantageous, but we thought you should hear from the tournament directors themselves. I would say that this tournament is more realistic. It forces you to make mistakes, and you will grow every single round you are in in a way that other tournaments you might not. Yeah, I think it is the the confidence that you get um, from realizing that the only thing you have to rely on up there is yourself, and you can trust yourself to remember what you have to say. You don't have to think back to a script. Um, You don't have to rely on months and months of preparation. You know what you're doing. And then when you go to a competition or you go into a real trial where you have been preparing for months and months, you trust yourself even more. It's very special to Berkeley Law Trial, but I genuinely think, and we've heard it from the competitors, that finding your inner genuine advocate is something that this tournament really promotes, that this format promotes. And I think that that's so important, not only for mock trial people, but as we all go into the legal profession. Now, if you're curious about how you could bring flash trial back to your programs, Berkeley Law will be publishing all six cases that were used in this tournament on their website. 
and they're going to be hosting the same tournament for the third time next year. So stay tuned for that. Well, that's a wrap. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is not a wrap, sir. Hmm. What are, you what are you talking about? Well, aren't we missing something very, very important? Uh... Spencer, 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 Spencer. Yeah. When I was invited yeah. to be the fourth best guest host on Unscripted Direct, uh-huh. I said I would only do it if I was able to introduce... What? The Wow. Wow. The, the, the break is broken. It will never be the same. Wow. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess we should probably announce the winners then. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, it's not a bad idea. All right. All right. As you heard, our finalists were Baylor Law and the University of South Carolina. And the winner was <gasps> South Carolina. Nice. Congratulations, South Carolina, Baylor, everybody for a great competition. Before we wrap up, I need to give a shout out to the National Flash Trial Competition Organizing Committee who worked tirelessly to put on this competition. Now, Berkeley, we don't have any paid positions that are charged with putting on or hosting competitions. So it's all about our volunteers that make it possible. Thank you so much to Jenna Forster, my co-director, Darren Kikiolu, Jordan Ferboni, Chris Brown, and then students Maddie Driscoll, Brian Anderson, Dario Maciel, and Peyton Fong. Shouldn't we finish this up with a little uh, wildly inadmissible? Ooh, that's a good idea. Do you do you have something? I sure do. About Justin. What? Okay, 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 okay. I, I, I got to hear this. But first of all, first of all, uh, wildly inadmissible. That just to remind everybody, that's a segment where we tell a complete lie that is utterly untruthful and not in not remotely reliable whatsoever at all. Is that the segment we're talking about? Not this one. Not, Not this, this one. one. Oh, dang. This okay. one is completely true. Oh, my God. Go on. Yeah. I can say that because this is about Justin. Nice. And Justin can't sue Unscripted Direct <laughs> for saying anything untrue. That's so smart. That is so smart. Why would he bite the hand that feeds him? <laughs> His own. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of biting the hand that feeds you, do you remember when we went out to dinner in San Francisco at the end of season four, we went out to a fancy restaurant and Justin being the foodie that he is, ordered a a rare steak and he, he he almost said, he said as rare as you can make it. And when they brought that steak, he was so upset at how well done it was cooked he took a bite out of the waiter's shoulder to show the waiter exactly how raw he wanted his steak. And I was like, wow, that's a foodie right there. Next level. He's usually so well behaved and he's, you know, such a thoughtful person. It really kind of it threw me a little bit when he was like actively chewing into this this fine gentleman's shoulder. But, you know, he's a principled person, too. I mean, Justin believes something he's going to stand up for it. So I, I, I sort of saw that side of it, too. But wow. 
But the weirdest part wasn't that he just like took a bite out of the waiter's shoulder. The weirdest <laughs> part was that he then swallowed the entire piece of the waiter's shoulder just in one gulp like a bird <laughs> and then was like, I'm a bird. And then he developed he these wings away. and walked out of the restaurant and flew away, never to be seen again. Remember that? Wasn't that weird? We've actually been synthesizing his voice ever since. I haven't seen him. <laughs> Strange. We love you, Justin, and we promise that we'll serve you only the rarest steak. <laughs> if you have a problem with it, you can eat the manager. <laughs> Thanks, folks. We'll see you in the new year. Unscripted Direct is a production of Justin and Spencer. We're mixed, edited, and guided spiritually by the Sam Chase. Find us on various social media channels as follows. For Instagram at Unscripted Direct. Facebook is facebook.com slash unscripted direct and Twitter, which will always be Twitter to me, we're at unscripted DX.